Welcome to the Multiply Your Success podcast, where each week we help growth-minded entrepreneurs and franchise leaders take the next step in their expansion journey. I'm your host, Tom Dufour, CEO of Big Sky Franchise Team, and I am so excited about our guest today. In fact, it's one that I've been hoping to have on since we started the podcast, to bring on someone that was able to live and be a part of the whole growth of Chick-fil-A. And I'm so fortunate today that we get a chance to hear from someone that was able to help build that and build the brand that we all know and love today. He shares with us so many great pieces of wisdom and nuggets of knowledge. You are going to want to listen all the way through to the end of the episode. And our guest is Steve Robinson. He's the former executive vice president and chief marketing officer of Chick-fil-A for more than 30 years. He recently wrote the book, Covert Cows and Chick-fil-A, How Faith, Cows, and Chicken Built an Iconic Brand. And we discuss his book and some of the magic behind the Chick-fil-A success. And as an extra special treat for me, this just happens to be my birthday week. So I'm so grateful to be celebrating this week with this great interview with Steve Robinson. Well, Tom, it's a treat to be with you. Uh, My name is Steve Robinson. I am the retired uh, CMO and Executive Vice President of Marketing for Chick-fil-A. Uh, I had a 35-year career with them, plus three years on their board. Prior to that, I was with Six Flags organization for seven years. Uh, my first job out of graduate school was at Texas Instruments when they were first introducing uh, handheld consumer computers, which were much more bulky than this and didn't do anything like this does today. Uh, went to Northwestern grad school and Auburn University undergraduate. And I, went, I met my uh, sweetheart and my wife now for almost 50 years, Diane at Auburn. I have two grown children and four grandchildren. Uh, we all live in the Atlanta area and uh, have had an unbelievably blessed career and love um just love sharing what I've learned and not only good, but including the mistakes uh, with others. So it's an honor to be able to spend some time with you. Well, thank you so much. And, and I've, I've had the opportunity to read your book and for, for just, it's called covert cows and Chick-fil-A how faith cows and chicken built an iconic brand. Uh, I love the title. It's really catchy. And I think it's great. And uh, one of the things you talk about in there, you talk about this idea of how at Chick-fil-A, there, there was this concept of grace and truth that was kind of interwoven throughout so much of what was happening at the organization. And I'd love just to kind of open up with you sharing a little bit about what that what that was like and what that meant. Yeah. That's a great question, and I'm glad you asked it. I spent, as I just alluded, I spent my first eight years of professional work at two companies that were publicly owned, Texas Instruments and Six Flags. And being being in marketing at both, I had a a pretty uh, intense focus on creating transactions, driving sales, uh, being publicly owned, as you might expect, they both kind of had a short-term orientation. Every quarter was important. And so um, when I get approached by Chick-fil-A uh, in the summer of 1980 uh, to potentially help them begin a marketing department, I had met them. I had some understanding who they were. 
I'd actually pitched them on building a restaurant in the, in the park and that didn't work out. Um, but that's how the relationship got started. And I figured, you know what, I, I would like to talk to them. Um, I had a lot of respect for the, the company. It was private. I liked their product. And what little exposure I'd had to them, I was impressed with the people I met. And that's really the, that's the beginning where I started to understand the answer to your question. Um, first of all, that interview process was almost five months long. And I'm in my last interview with Truett Cathy, who was the founder who uh, passed away in 2014 and Truett looks at me and I look at him after about an hour of being together. And I said, Truett, uh, this is a little cumbersome for me. We we've had, I've had a lot of visits out here. I'm doing it stealth. I really like the job I've got. What are you looking for in the ideal marketing candidate? And am I the guy? Now, Tommy's answer was one of the very first major clues. This, this is an, very different organization. There was this long pause and he said, I have absolutely no idea. Whatever it is, I don't want to do it. I remember what I asked him, what are you looking for? <laughs> right. And he says, after a pause, he said, but this, this, I do know that if we invite you to join Chick-fil-A, it's going to be because we trust you. We think we can have fun together and that you're, you're, you're going to love it so much here. You're not going to go anywhere. Now, I've had four jobs in eight years with two different companies, and I found that answer very odd. But what he was really basically telling me, we value things beyond transactions. Uh, we value character. We value integrity. We value fun, fun, friendships. And the guy had already, even, even though the business was still less than a $100 million business, he had already laid the cultural foundation for what proved to be an environment that allowed me and my team to have an unbelievable brand building experience. So what I found was on his desk was his favorite verse, Bible verse, Proverbs 22, one, a good name is to be more valued than, than riches, silver or gold. And I asked him, I said, true, what's the significance of that verse? He said, well, quite frankly, I adopted that as a um, life verse when I was in the third grade. And he said, the essence of it is the most important thing to me is my reputation. Um, cash flow is the lifeblood of a business, but that's not the most important thing to me. He says, I'm more, I'm more interested in, in helping others, not only customers, but everybody I associate with and having a positive influence on people. And as I unpack in the book, Within a year and a half of being there, we have a major financial crisis in the American economy in 1982, which forced us to step back and really put on paper what was important to Chick-fil-A. And the result of that three-day meeting was the Chick-fil-A corporate purpose, to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all those entrusted to us and to have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. And I heard Truett during that meeting articulate to our, his young executive committee, uh, I, I am more interested in having a positive reputation, good stewardship, rest on um, those things of, of influence and, and honoring God, rest on good stewardship. And um, he cared about 
Um, he cared about making money, but he was more interested in pouring into people and giving people an opportunity within the Chick-fil-A family to thrive. And as to get specific to your question, as I worked with that, that guy for over three decades, I don't know I've ever met anybody who was more generous uh, and who was more gracious. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, it played out in the decisions he made and the policies he had. I mean, for starters, the Chick-fil-A operator deal, Chick-fil-A puts up all the money, they find the site, they build the restaurant. After the operator pays a royalty, the Chick-fil-A for operating support, brand support, et cetera, they split the bottom line with them 50-50. Now, when I joined Chick-fil-A, the average operator was making about 40,000 a year on their half net. Uh, all, all I can tell you is today, I can't give you a number. <laughs> it would betraying, be, be betraying their confidence. But I can tell you that the average operator income today is more than 10 times that. The deal's never changed. And that, that people ask me, well, why do operators stay with Chick-fil-A so long? Well, I think there's two reasons. One, it's generous. I just demonstrated how generous it is. But two, it's, they trust Chick-fil-A, they trust Truett, and they trust the relationship. And, and he would go the extra mile to give operators a chance to be successful. And as a result, operator turnover is very low. You experience good team members in Chick-fil-A in restaurants because operators are tracking great talent, keeping them much longer, developing them, training them, investing in them. And so you have... You have a general culture that benefits from a guy that that it's it stands second mile grace very often in his relationships, and and it had a general attitude of generosity. So beyond the operator deal, they got scholarship programs, they got generous perks for the staff. Um, it they give away literally now literally hundreds of millions of dollars every year to community support stuff. It reflected and it reflected Truett Catholic. I mean, he literally, financially, he literally tithed the business. And they still are. And that tithe flows through now three different foundations. And that's not even counting what they do with scholarships and the operator deal. So um, the best way to prove to you that Chick-fil-A is, is an organization of grace and generosity is to see how it plays out in their policies and their working standards or working systems. I will also tell you, case in point, in 2012, we had a pretty big major publicity blow up that involved a debate over same-sex marriage. And the net of that was, we stepped back from that and said, now how are we gonna handle the reaction that has occurred in the marketplace? And after two or three days of debate, we said, we're gonna handle the way we handle people at the counter. We're going to treat everybody with honor, dignity, and grace. And the key word there is everybody. And we're not going to get into some political or social debate that in any way would fracture or jeopardize relationships, not only at the home office, but certainly in our restaurants, at the stores. To me, that was a, that was, now that's 20 some plus years into my relationship. And that was a decision that was drive, drove by an environment of grace uh, and, and inclusion. So 
a long answer to your question, but that you you identified two of the strongest attributes of the Chick-fil-A culture. And it reflected, it reflected the founder. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you for sharing that and going into detail on that. It was something that really resonated. I I kind of kept hearing just uh, through it was kind of woven throughout every example, every story, every all the the information you shared. It it really stood out to me, and that that's one of the reasons I was interested in leading with that, just to gain additional perspective. So thank you, I really appreciate that. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah. Um. One other one other question I had here as well is, uh, when you just made the decision to focus your marketing on uh, having the marketing be be run through the local franchisee and the local operator. Yes. And and that that's a big decision that you made. And that's something that we work with franchise organizations all over the country, all over the world. And it's always a, a an interesting dynamic. There's always this, yep. th- this franchisee, franchisor relationship. Yep. So I'd love for you to share about kind of how you went through, what happened, how you went through that tra- and how you went yep. through the transition. Well, it didn't just it didn't just happen like that. Like so many things in life, you 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 work your way to making a crucial milestone decision because of an accumulation of experiences. I'll share just a couple that that really were catalytic. One that I share in the book happened in 1982. In fact, it was right during the same time of that financial crisis in America. We did a national promotion. We had a, an agency that they'd already hired. I, I kind of inherited the agency. I'm still learning the business. And they had recommended a national promotion using direct mail and newspaper inserts uh, in, a, in an effort to counter McDonald's introduction of their chicken sandwich. And the theme of the promotion was Chick-fil-A first and best. And the goal was to clarify that we were the first chicken sandwich and get people to try it. Well, this promotional flyer had an array of coupons in it. Now, um, we had used coupons at Six Flags. Everybody in the fast food business was using coupons and discounts. And I didn't give them much of a second thought. Um, And I came alongside the idea that was already in the works. And I, I put in some input around the media plan and how to beef up visibility and redemptions. Well, fast forward to the when the promotion rolls out, it literally it's it's so successful, it's becoming an operational nightmare, um, and it all told it went over budget by two million dollars. And that may not sound like a lot to you and me, particularly in this day of government printing trillions, but two million dollars was almost two percent of Chick Fil A's gross sales at that point. So it was a lot of it, it. It hit the company hard. Yeah, and I and I was fully expecting someone in accounting to salt my yard, but anyway, um, I stepped back from that experience and I went to Jimmy Collins, who was the COO, two or three days into this thing blowing up. Said Jimmy, I apologize. I shouldn't have been so aggressive, um, really not knowing enough about the implications on the business, and I and I'm sorry. And he had an amazing response. And this gets back to your point of grace. Um, he said, don't worry about it. I supported the campaign. I supported your recommendations. 
He says, besides, we've just invested $2 million in your education. You're never going to make that mistake again. Now, little did I know the further implications of that time was I stepped back of that from that along with some of my early staff and said, why are we couponing? Why are you even doing this? Just because everybody else does it. Here we are in a restaurant that actually makes their own food fresh in every store. We have an independent operator on site who's attracting great talent. The food, the food is worth the price. What are we doing discounting and couponing this? And we, we just made the decision. Now, it may take years to do it, but we're, we're not doing it anymore. We're going to stop. So the natural reaction of operators was, well, then what are you going to do to help build our sales? And our and we thought we thought through what they would probably ask us. And our response was, and this was after a lot of wrestling, we're going to help you build your sales. We're not going to build it for you. We're going to focus on building the brand, whatever that means. Advertising, the menu, the look of the brand, the, the brand experience, whatever. We're going to help you build the brand and we're going to give you marketing tools for you to build your sales profitably, but we're not going to do it with couponing, discounting, or price promotions. Over. It took years to make that transition. And so the answer to your question is once we made that decision, we had to step back and look, okay, the traditional marketing model at most franchise organizations is a pyramid upside down. And most of the execution and the money and the strategies come from the home office and then comes to the market level. And the local store doesn't do much other than put up the menu boards and maybe some stuff in the windows. The manager's not doing anything Bill says. So because of the decision to walk away from couponing and discounting and trying to control marketing out of Atlanta, we didn't have enough money to impact the, the, the performance of stores anyway. Remember, most of our stores are in malls. We said, why don't we flip this thing literally on its, on its ear, figure out how we're going to support the operators to be the primary marketing agents of the business, and at that time, maximize the mall as a medium. We're paying premium rent to be in the mall. And so we set out on a journey to give them creative tools, brand tools, promotional ideas, um, anything they needed to build, build, literally build their sales from the counter out. That's how the, the long journey, that started in the, that would have been the mid 80s. Mm -hmm. We said, we're not going to market like all these other guys. And it was a long trip, and that trip's still going on, but it's built upon a marketing pyramid that is operator-centric, then the market, and the and the, the primary role of the home office is to do it for the operators what they cannot do for themselves. Design the brand, support the brand services they need to market in their restaurant, in their community, and in their markets. And by the way, the result of that is we when I left, we were spending as a percentage sale, percent of sales, roughly half what all the other people in the fast food industry spend. Wow. Much more efficient, much more impactful. And the other advantage we had was the independent operator who's not just running, managing the store. They're committed to that store. They're committed to that community. They were capable of doing more than just opening the restaurant every morning and running, running the operation. 
And so we, we just simply said, look, you want to grow your sales and grow your income? We're going to give you all the resources you need and you go out and do it. Hmm. And um, I will tell you, my last two years there, operators generated double-digit, double-digit same stores in, sales increase. And the five years I've been gone, every year has had a same store sale increase of a of double digit. Unbelievable. Wow. When I left Chick-fil-A my last year there, which was 15, sales were 6.8 billion. Last year they did over $17 billion, billion dollars in sales. That's incredible. There is no way you're going to get that kind of performance uh, from a from a marketing organization driving it from the central office. Not going to happen. It's because of these operators who've engaged with their communities, built relationships. They've created this incredible network of raving fans, as we call them, uh, customers who are basically brand ambassadors. And that business, that business is growing. Um, it, it's kind of like Peter's flywheel. That 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 business is flowing because of the flywheel of the Chick-fil-A operators building the brand and building sales on their own. Yeah. Well, and, and that this kind of leads me to another point you had talked about, which is th- this idea where you said at one point that you use data to inform decisions and not make the decisions for you. Yeah. And I thought that was a really unique perspective, especially in today's world where uh, yes. We have data science and data analytics, and we oh, have yeah. artificial intelligence yes. running all the data and the yes. numbers and the this and that. Yes. And then uh, just working, I work with entrepreneurs every day, and very often they're trusting uh, an instinct, an intuition that they're they're complying. So it's kind of these almost polarized worlds. And right. you you mention and describe kind of how you used both in, yes. in making decisions. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit yes. about that. Well, again, that was a journey. Um, early in my career, we started using customer voice research to make decisions because when I got there, they weren't. They were making most of their decisions. They weren't even using a lot of data at all. They were making it based just on experience and intuition. And what I discovered is as we listened to the customers, we suddenly got smarter. Um But then as the business grew, this whole evolution of the role of not only research analytics, but also internal um, number analytics, financial, customer count, customer insights data, that all starts to come to bear on the business. And quite frankly, I I found myself at times at odds with people predominantly in the financial realm who felt like every major strategic decision in the business, particularly around brand or marketing, should be um, uh, data-driven and should be uh, data-proven even even before you launch the initiative. Well, here's the problem for me. We were trying to build a brand that was built around emotional engagement with customers. It wasn't transaction-driven. Is relational driven because of the focus through the operators and through creating a guest experience that was relational. Uh, right down to my pleasure and smiles and eye contact. Right down to the cow campaign that made you laugh and smile. 
you have a hard time using analytics to measure the emotional engagement of people around the brand. And we finally got to the place that we were able to convince people the ultimate measure of brand performance are two things. One, how you doing on same store sales? Real growth. And two, well, a lot of help from a friend called Fred Reichel on a book he wrote called, wrote called The Ultimate Question. We were able to put research in place by store and by market where we, every quarter, we asked literally thousands of customers based upon today's experience at this restaurant or your favorite Chick-fil-A restaurant, would you recommend Chick-fil-A to family or friend? One to 10. 10 is perfect. And what we discovered with that data, when we then took those people and put them in focus groups, 10s versus everybody else, or nine tens versus everybody else, was the tens were what became known as raving fans for us. They were brand advocates. They were the heaviest users. They were the ones that talked about the brand the most. They were the ones that used it the most. They were the ones that were willing to pay full price. And so we started focusing on measuring, using data to measure how many raving fans, how many tens are we creating? Because otherwise we had we had people crunching all kinds of data and everybody had everybody had their opinion on which piece of data was the most important. And we were able to finally filter it down. The most important data is two things, same store growth by store, because it's the ultimate measure of customer satisfaction. Now behind it, we had analytics, but that was the one that mattered. And two, is this operator creating more tens than he was last year or she was last year? You can measure that. The beauty of measuring tens is it was a way to measure emotion. It was a way to take, it was a way to get beyond transaction focus and focus on heart connection, relational connection. And that was that was really uh, the breakthrough moment where we got the perfect, we got the perfect me- measurement of yes, data counts, but let's make sure we're measuring the right thing based upon what we're trying to create. And what we're trying to create was an emotionally engaging, endearing brand. And and we finally figured out how to measure that. And uh, now, if you're not if you're not trying to create an, an emotionally engaging brand, if you're only trying to create transactions, when you, you're going to have a different measurement. You're not going to do it the way we did it. Right. Yeah. Well, and and uh, thank you, by the way. That thank you for sharing that, and breaking that down for us. And, and I would oh add yeah, go ahead. Thing. I would add oh, yeah. one more thing, Tom. And I don't want to. I don't want to sound unhumble, but. CMOs, marketers have to decide what are you trying to create in that business? And fortunately, I had I had a founder in Truett and a COO in Jimmy Collins who understood what they were really trying to create was a great reputation. Remember Proverbs 22.1? Yep. They weren't just trying to beat quarterly earnings quarter after quarter. They were trying to create a great reputation. And because of that, it gave me the freedom to be objective and quite frankly, um, use intuition 
and bring things to the table that were counter to the things that normally were going on in the marketplace. As we, as I say in my book, things that were quite frankly renegade to the marketplace and do the unexpected, whether it was around hospitality or advertising or events or even the menu that were designed to create an emotional um, loyalty to Chick-fil-A. And that does require a, a, a marketing leader to lean, create a proper balance between data and intuition and, and fight for what they think they're trying to create. And fortunately, because I wasn't being measured upon quarterly earnings, I had a, I had a, a founder and a CEO that had my back for over 30 years and I got to, I got to do what I just described. Many, I, I recognize many marketing leaders don't get that chance, uh, but I did. Yeah. 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 I, I, I totally agree. It's such a, a unique opportunity as, as you described there. And, and, and that kind of leads that that's a great um, just kind of uh, leading. You, you help lead right into one of my questions that I, I was curious about. You describe the, you talk about three virtues of, uh, advertising or a brand. You, you talk about it being engaging and endearing and enduring. Yes. And I thought, I, I love that summary of that. So I'd love for you to maybe talk about uh, talk about that. And it, while you're at it, I'd love to kind of integrate. It's, it's hard not to interview you and not ask about the cows and sure. how that all came together. And I think those kind of, from, from, from what you described in your book, kind of uh, th- those two go hand in hand. They do go hand in hand. And I have to give credit where credit due. Credit is due. Stan Richards, who was the principal of the Richards Group, that created the cow campaign early in our relationship back in 1995-96. We're sitting in a meeting. They haven't even brought us the cow idea yet. But we had already made the decision. We wanted these guys because they thought out of the box. Their record was their, their record was built on great creative. It wasn't based on you know innovative media strategies. It was built on great brand shaping creative. And we're in a meeting one day, and he and he says, you know, we've discovered that um, if people don't love you, if people don't love your advertising, they're not going to love your brand. Think about that. That is a high bar. And I said, well, Stan, un- unpack that a little bit. He said, well, you, you got to figure out, you got to have advertising that becomes endearing to them. They, they, they look forward to it. it. It connects with them. And ideally, it's advertising that you can you can run for a long time. So as it's not only endearing for a, a, a moment, it becomes endearing long-term and therefore it, it's an enduring idea. Okay. So basically I stole, I stole that concept as, as higher order as what makes for a great brand. You want a brand that every time somebody encounters BMW or Chick-fil-A or whoever it is, whatever, whatever it is they see or experience, they know immediately that's BMW. They know that's Chick-fil-A. 
That's the experience I would expect from Chick-fil-A or BMW or Nordstrom's or Southwest Airlines. That that I'm immediately engaged because that's 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 exactly who I think they are. Two, whatever it is they're experiencing makes the brain more enduring. Endearing, I'm sorry. It 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 uh, it, it simply raises the 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 temperature of how much they enjoy the brand. And I I could relate to this because I've said BMW. I'm a BMW fan. I've had five of them. And so I, yeah, you know, the ultimate driving machine is more than just a phrase to me. And then this whole idea of enduring great brands typically live a very, very long time because they do those first two things well and they enjoy an enduring track record. And even if they wander away from it a little bit, they usually find a way to come back to the things that made them engaging and enduring. So that kind of thinking is what led to them developing the cow campaign, but it also at a, a bigger level led us to think about everything we do. When we do an event at a bowl game or a football game, we want to engage in a way like no other sponsors engaging. We want the experience to be enduring and, and we want the memory to endure. And it, it drove everything we did. Yeah, that, that this is just a tremendous takeaway there. Uh, just a great filter. It, it's it's simple to remember and just yes. even write down, but just even just a practical takeaway just to think about, okay, is this engaging? I think about any any marketer, any yes. business leader. If it look like everybody, if it looks like everybody else is not going to be engaging. Right. For example. I mean, it's a high, those three things are a high bar. It forces you to be very innovative and very creative and to, and to think, um, you know, kind of oxymoron out of, out of the box. We got a lot of pleasure in basically looking at people in meetings and say that if that looks and smells like fast food, we're not going to do that. It made some of our discussions pretty short. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that that's great, right? If, yes, if it, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it sure is. Yeah, sure. having that clarity wrapped around it, I, I, I think it's phenomenal. Um, well, well, Steve, uh, one of the things I'd like to do, and, and something we ask every guest that's been on the show, we, we transition to ask the same four questions before everybody goes. Okay. And the first question we always like to ask is, has have you had a miss or two in your career? And if you could share one and something you learned from it. Oh, wow. Well, I already alluded to one miss was when I was quite frankly too aggressive and out of out of my arrogance and 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 beefed up and ran a promotion that um I mean it should have never been two million dollars over budget. It was my fault. The bigger lesson learned, however, turned out to be a blessing, which I've already shared. I'd say another one was early in my career. Um I'm I'm talking 10 years into my career. I'm I've probably got, by this time, a department of pushing 100 people. I'm running meetings every week, planning, strategic planning meetings. I'm on the executive committee. And I finally had one guy that was part of my team who's a dear friend, still is. He pulled me off to the side and he said, Steve, you don't, I don't think you know you're doing it. But when we're having discussions and you're soliciting feedback, your body language is communicating, hurry up, I already know the answer. 
He says, We're, you're not doing it, but in, in your mind, we can see you doing this. Well, Barry, his name was Barry. Barry did me a huge favor. And so one of the great takeaways from that is I learned, in, I learned to shut up and listen. And a funny thing happened, Tom, I, as I became a more patient and better listener and learned to be the last guy to speak rather than the first, I suddenly got smarter. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I was a terrible listener and I felt compelled that I had to have all the answers, which led third to I was impatient when it came to selecting talent. And I learned through the Chick-fil-A culture and even that experience, slow down and attract people that can do better than what you want done than if you did it yourself. Hmm. And, um, and I started to build a team who were so good at what they did that I was able to focus on the things that only I could do, that only I should do, and, and empower them and release them. And the irony was the truth had already been role modeling that for me for years, and I was just a little slow on the uptake. Um, I, I would say those were three pretty big ones. Um, yeah. 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 That's, that's great. Thank you for sharing those. And how about on the other side, you we've talked about a whole bunch of makes along the way. Is there anything else, anything else you'd like to reiterate or maybe another one you'd yeah, like to share with well, us? One was uh, you alluded to the cow campaign was one was the day I'm sitting in my office. We hadn't been working with agency a year yet. And they shipped to the guy who was running the agency relationship. He, they shipped him six new billboard ideas because at that time, that's all we could afford to do was billboards. And we're, we were doing 3D creative. We had, I, I won't get into them, but we had different concepts using 3D boards. One of the best ones was huge rubber chicken, and the headline was, if it's not Chick-fil-A, it's a joke. Okay. But anyway, I'm sitting in my office, and I walk in, and, um, and I look at my desk, and he's laid six new billboard concepts down on my desk, face down. I flip them. The last one is two cows painting Eat More Chicken on a billboard. And I absolutely love it. I, I just start laughing out loud. In fact, two or three people come to my doorway. What is so funny? The breakthrough moment was simply having the intuitive hunch. That's a big idea. And we ended up running it one board in our top 20 markets. It, the rest was literally history. It took off. Suddenly, we had, thinking we were just looking at a billboard idea, we had stumbled into a campaign idea that became a 20-plus year campaign and in its own right became iconic. It helped build, it helped build the brand Chick-fil-A, without question. I think the second um, milestone moment that really impacted my career was I'm studying some Nielsen data one day, looking at the lifestyle habits of Chick-fil-A customers. And you see the kind of stuff where they shop, things they watch, events they enjoy. And I won't go into all the details, but I suddenly see this, the, 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 one of the highest in, index of Chick-fil-A customers was they either go to or they watch college football. Now, this is a point in the mid-late 
mid-90s when we're starting to ask the question, okay, what can we do for operators they cannot do for themselves? And it was about time to start entertaining either regional or national media and or sponsorship. So the the essence of that was it it started, as I discussed in the book, a conversation of over two years to become the title sponsor of the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl and began our relationship in college football. And for the first several years, the only media we had was the 10 spots that were part of the bowl game. But it became a 20-plus year journey in the college football space that went from the bowl game becoming a member of the college football playoff, active active with CBS, ESPN, every major conference. And I think maybe one of the bigger outgrowths was we started doing licensed Chick-fil-A restaurants on college campuses now or back then. And today there's over 300 restaurants on university campuses across America revolutionized the brand. And most most of our media expenditures at Chick-fil-A even today are still dominantly in the collegiate space because it was so efficient. And literally, I had Troy Cathy on the floor of the dome one year at the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl, and I was just thanking him for his support. And he looked up at the people in the stands. He said, well, these look like our customers to me. And it was that simple to him. Um, he, he, had a, he had an intuitive sense that college athletics was a great spot to be. And it, it, really, it really helped take cows plus that really launched us as a national brand. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, well, thank you for sharing that. And uh, Steve, how about this idea of a multiplier? Is there a multiplier or two you used in, in your career to, uh, for business, personal, professional? I think I think Tom the multiplier. I can think of a couple. Uh, one I already alluded to it: hire great talent, and not only is my job easier, great talent attracts more great talent. I have never worked, and I work TI six. I have never worked at a more talented group of people than the people I got to work with Chick-fil-A. Quality attracts quality. And, and, and I don't mean just competency. I mean character and just wanting to be around them. And it, it has the multiplier effect is what I just said. They attract more great people. And that, that really is the key to the Chick-fil-A restaurants, the operators, attract more great operators. The operators attract great talent in their restaurants, many of whom become operators. And it's this flywheel of talent within the Chick-fil-A family. The second thing I would say is the clarity of defining what we wanted the brand to be, even as late as 2012, where we put our heads and research around it again. And, and, and the net of it was Chick-fil-A. We want Chick-fil-A to be a, a brand where good meets gracious. It's not just about the food, it's about the entire experience, and it's really about the personal engagement with people. The clarity, my point is the clarity of not just your corporate purpose, but your brand purpose creates synergy and and the flywheel effect. Um, 
The, the, the last thing I will say is clarity around corporate purpose not only uh, helps the business make better decisions, it's easier to filter out what's right and what's wrong. It actually helps people figure out what's important to them. Corporate purpose had a big influence on mine, Diane's life, even in how we approached, how we made decisions, what we chose to spend our time and our money on. So that, that would be three. If, if leaders can be clear about purpose, clear about brand mission, and clear about who you're trying to track to the business, this happens without question. Yeah, and, and, and that, that's a great lead into the last question here, Steve, which is what does success mean to you? <laughs> that's a big one. Well, I guess the simplest way I can describe it is if, if, I, if I turn around, is anybody following? Um, I, I think ultimately success to me is seeing people that I interacted with, people that I worked with, people that I led with thriving. And I don't just mean thriving professionally, but thriving personally, thriving in their marriage, their family, uh, their spiritual lives, their, their, their next generation of children. Um, I, I, people, I, I learned, you know, even when I retired, it didn't take very long for me to learn that when you retire, people, from a professional point of view, people pretty quickly forget you were ever there. But at a personal level, if you've had, if you've had some lasting impact on people uh, at the personal level and you've tried to live out and, and pass on to them values and principles that are beyond the business, those relationships don't quit. Uh, and the impact of those relationships don't quit. So that that would that's what success looks like to me. Seeing other people that I've had interaction with uh, thrive in every every aspect of their life. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And Steve, as we wrap this up, what's the best way for someone maybe to get a copy of your book or learn a little bit more about what you're doing? Okay. Well, thanks. I've got a website, srobinsonconsulting.com. I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, I also have a S Robinson consulting page on Facebook. Uh, if they go to my website, they'll find my email and my phone number. I am doing consulting. I'm uh, also speaking. I'm registered with a speaking bureau out of DC called leading authorities incorporated. So, um, that would be, that'd be how to do it. Steve, thank you so much for a wonderful interview and sharing all of the information you did with us. Let's go ahead and jump into our three key takeaways. So takeaway number one from the interview is when Steve talked about the idea how, of how they use data to inform decisions, not make decisions for them. And I thought that was a really interesting point. He talked about how they use same store sales and they ask questions to their customers about how they would rank Chick-fil-A on a scale from one to 10. And they use that data and information to help inform decisions that they were making. So I thought that was a great point. The data didn't make the decision for them, but it informed the decision so that they were having a very informed decision on how they were proceeding forward. Takeaway number two is when Steve talked about the three virtues of advertising, I thought it was fantastic, short, concise, and easy to remember. He said the three virtues of advertising is 
are that it needs to be engaging, endearing, and enduring. Engaging, endearing, and enduring. I thought those were three just quick, easy things to remember and take away. And takeaway number three was this idea of how he defined success. And he said two things that he looks for. Number one, if you turn around, is anyone following you? And number two, are the people that are are around you, are they thriving in every area and every aspect of their life, personally, professionally, and spiritually? And now it's time for today's win-win. So today's win-win comes from when Steve was talking about how Chick-fil-A was focused and continues to be focused on building a great brand reputation. And that started with Truett Cathy making that focus to build a great reputation. And he said how that made his job easier as the head of marketing because he knew exactly what he was trying to create. So he talked about how having that clarity around what what you want the brand to be and your corporate purpose makes it so much easier for everyone on the team to be aligned and to make decisions. He said that they decided at Chick-fil-A, they wanted to be the brand where good meets gracious. So he said, as you're going through this to focus on your corporate purpose, brand mission, and how they're going to attract business, people, customers, and so on. And so That's the episode today, folks. Please make sure you subscribe to the podcast and give us a review. And remember, if you or anyone you know might be ready to franchise their business or take their franchise company to the next level, please connect with us at BigSkyFranchiseTeam.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we look forward to having you back next week.